Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, coming to you from Studio A today for a change, a last-minute uh, substitution. Got a lot to talk about this week. Um, next week is the 60th anniversary of the opening of the Second Vatican Council. So on today's program, we're going to have a special anniversary edition of our recurring segment, uh, Will the Real Vatican II Please Stand Up? We're also going to talk about a lesson to be learned from a perhaps unexpected source, that of the Lone Ranger and Tonto. Maybe you're not expecting to hear about that on a Catholic podcast, but there it is. And also last week we shared some keys to more effective prayer, and we didn't get through them all, so we're going to pick up on where we left off with that uh, later in the program. But to begin, as always, I'd like to start the show with uh, the gospel from Sunday of this week, and we've been kind of bouncing back and forth between the ordinary form and extraordinary form calendars, and uh, I'm going to take the reading from the extraordinary form this week. Uh, This Sunday was the 17th after Pentecost, and the gospel is taken from Matthew chapter 22. When the Pharisees learned that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and to test him, One of them, a lawyer, asked this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Everything in the law and the prophets depends on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were assembled together, Jesus asked them this question, What is your opinion about the Christ? Whose son is he? They replied, He is the son of David. He responded, How is it then that David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer, and from that day onward, no one dared ask him any further questions. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. See, the rabbis in Jesus' day counted 248 precepts and 365 prohibitions of the law for a grand total of 613 commandments. But Jesus, I mean, rather than dividing the law into a long string of precepts and prohibitions, he unifies the law into these two essential commandments from the Old Testament. To love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, and soul, that's from Deuteronomy 6.5, and to love your neighbor as yourself, that's Leviticus 19.18. These, he says, form the basis of every other precept. Keep these two, and you keep the whole of the law. The issue was that the the Pharisees' human traditions, which he actually condemns earlier in Matthew, uh, their interpretations and their applications of the law, had become more important to them than the law of God itself. You know, and their laws were not all bad. Some of them were quite beneficial. But the problems arose when the the religious leaders, number one, held that their man-made laws were, uh, you know, equal to God's laws— Or number two, when they insisted that the people obey these rules, but didn't do so themselves. Or number three, when they observed the rules, but not to honor God, 
rather to make themselves look good. So, you know, we have an example in the parable of the uh, Pharisee and the publican. Now, usually, Jesus did not condemn what the Pharisees taught, but rather what they were, which is to say, hypocrites. Now, at this point in the gospel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the Herodians had all asked their questions. And now Jesus turns the table and he asks them a question. He asked them who they thought the Messiah was. What is your opinion about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, for centuries, people have been waiting, awaiting the Christ, a Messiah. And the Pharisees knew perfectly well that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. But they assumed that he would be a merely human political and military leader, the, the way David was. But the prophesied Christ would be more than just the heir to David's earthly throne. He would possess the very authority of God. See, what they didn't understand is that the Messiah of prophecy would be God himself. And although they did have an image of this in the book of Psalms, right? The uh, inspired songs of David. Psalm 110 begins with the words, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I have made your enemies a footstool for you. So Jesus quotes this to show that the Messiah would be greater than David. And St. Paul uses the same verse in Hebrews 1.13 to prove, uh, precisely to prove the divinity of Christ. Now, this then is the question. The most important question you are ever going to answer is, what do I believe about Jesus Christ? As he asked the apostles, who do you say that I am? See, all of the other theological questions are irrelevant until we believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And now, a few words about the uh, commandment to love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. This greatest commandment illustrates the very meaning and purpose of life, which, you know, the old penny catechism says is to know, love, and serve God in this world and be happy with him forever in the next. And these things follow one after the other. To, to love God, we must know him, and uh, because we know him, we will love him, and if we love him, we will serve him. Now, understanding this is actually key to eternal happiness. So first, God made us to know him. You know, there's an old story about the good Catholic man who had a, an atheist as a house, house guest, and at dinner, the atheist started to boast. He said, uh, I'm proud to say that I'm the only one in this room who has the honor of not believing in God. And now his host, like I said, he's a good Catholic man, therefore knew and loved God and couldn't let that pass. And so he said to him, friend, um, you're, not the, you're mistaken. I'm afraid that you share the honor of not believing in God with my Airedale over there in the corner. <laughs> Only the dog doesn't brag about it. You see, unlike the atheist or the Airedale, Catholics are given the gift of the knowledge uh, or the gift of knowledge by the holy spirit and so we should endeavor to appreciate uh, uh, the, our knowledge of god and work to increase it and throughout your whole life that's why saint john paul ii said catechesis is for adults of every age including the elderly no less than for children adolescents and the young because god made us to know him Second, God made us to love him. Uh, there grows here in North America a little plant called the compass flower because the, the blossoms always point to the north. 
Uh, in the warmth of the sunshine, it points north. In the darkness of night, it points to the north. When the storm rages and the wind howls and the lightning flashes, still pointing northwards. Now, uh, back in the 1940s, a priest named Father Wilfred Diamond said that likewise, our hearts should always point toward God. Like the little compass flower in sunshine or in shadow, our hearts should always point Godwards because God made us to love him. And then finally, he made us to serve him. And there's a magnificent organ in the uh, cathedral at Freiburg in Germany. Now, it was originally built by Catholics in the Middle Ages, but uh, today it's a Lutheran church. Anyway, uh, many years ago, a white-haired old man came into the cathedral and asked if he could play the organ. And perhaps not surprisingly, they refused, and he went away disappointed. And then someone said, do you know who that was that you sent away? That was Felix Mendelssohn who was uh, you know, the, the premier musician of his day and the composer of many great works, you know, precisely for the organ. And they said, what a pity that we refused him. And think of the beautiful music he would have made. And God, for us, is the great master musician, and we are his instruments. But like Mendelssohn in that church, before God will fill our souls with music, he asks permission. The book of Revelation says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. But if we turn a deaf ear to his knocking, if we refuse him permission to enter, he will not come in, for he will not force his way into our hearts. Again, think of the many beautiful melodies that he would have played in our lives if only we let him. So if we know God, we will love him. If we love him, we will serve him. And if we serve him in this life, we'll be happy with him forever in the next. And how precisely do we serve him? Well, according to Jesus, at the last judgment, he will say, Amen, I say to you, whatever you did for the least of these brethren of mine, you did for me. Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So love of God and love of neighbor. That's the law and the prophets in a nutshell. And that's no nonsense. All right, I know we were uh, uh, speaking metaphorically about uh, Mendelssohn, but um, speaking of Mendelssohn, he was not a Catholic, but he was a, a great composer, and he composed a great deal of sacred music and uh, a great deal of musical, beautiful music to honor God precisely on the organ. I mean, Chances are you're probably not hearing a lot of Mendelssohn at your parish church these days. <laughs> but there is an exception. This is the point I want. I just wanted to bring up the fact that to give you some, some insight, some context into that uh, comparison, that Mendelssohn was the composer of the wedding march that is used as a recessional hymn at uh, so many weddings that you go to, both Catholic and Protestant. Okay, when we come back, is it too late to get Vatican II right? One priest says no, and we'll see why. Also, we're going to take a lesson from the Lone Ranger and Tonto. A lesson, uh, perhaps not coincidentally, about friendship and also ways to have a more effective prayer life. All of that and more when we come back with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
Welcome back to round two here at No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Next week marks the 60th anniversary of the opening of the Second Vatican Council, so it is time for another edition, special anniversary edition of our recurring segment, Will the Real Vatican II Please Stand Up? Now, as you probably know, I've long held the opinion that you do not have to assist at the traditional Latin Mass exclusively to be a traditional Catholic. I've long defined a traditional Catholic simply as one who can say the act of faith and mean it. But because traditional Catholic has become such a loaded term, I've adopted the expression no-nonsense Catholic to affirm that you can be a good and faithful Catholic regardless of which form of the Mass you attend. Uh, Now, what does that have to do with Vatican II? Well, a lot of people associate uh, the traditional Mass with the rejection of Vatican II. Um, but that's not, that's not the case, uh, at least not necessarily. Pope Benedict pointed out uh, that some people have interpreted the Second Vatican Council as a clean break with the tradition of the Church, as a veritable new start from zero. And he called that interpretation the hermeneutic of rupture. Now, the point being that whether you're a, a progressive Catholic who thinks that uh, this clean break with tradition is the best thing ever, or if you are a traditionalist Catholic who deplores this new start from zero, um, you're simply wrong. Either way, because Vatican II should not be considered a break with the tradition, but as a part of it. Therefore, Benedict says, you should adopt an hermeneutic of continuity, which is to understand that there is no rupture in the Church's teaching, and therefore, we should interpret Vatican II in the light of the 2,000 years of tradition that preceded it and not reinterpret 2,000 years of tradition in light of Vatican II. The question is, at this late date, can this be done? Well, according to an article on the Our Sunday Visitor website uh, by Father Patrick Briscoe, with study and prayer, the answer is yes. Uh, In his opinion, to understand the Council, we have to go back to the beginning. Sixty years ago, next week, October the 11th, Pope St. John XXIII opened the Council for this stated purpose, quote, that the sacred heritage of Christian truth be safeguarded and expounded with greater efficacy. And to that end, he said, what is needed and what everyone imbued with a truly Christian, Catholic, and apostolic spirit craves today is that this doctrine shall be more widely known, more deeply understood, and more penetrating in its effects on men's moral lives, unquote. So the purpose of Vatican II was not to break with tradition. On the contrary, Pope St. John insisted that it is, quote, absolutely vital that the Church shall never for an instant lose sight of that sacred patrimony of truth inherited from the fathers. He saw the Council as an opportunity of updating the way in which the sacred and perennial and unchanging truths of the faith are set forth in Catholic teaching in order to help modern people grow in holiness. (laughs) But we all know what actually happened. And you're no doubt familiar with the stories of, of how the Council was hijacked and how its purpose was subverted and so on and how it, you know, that entered into the documents. Others, like Benedict XVI, believe that the documents of Vatican II, which uh, represents the actual teaching of the Council, okay, the documents themselves are sound. 
but the application of the teaching by many was ill-considered, even heretical. This is the, the hermeneutic of continuity argument that tries to remain faithful to the substance of the conciliar teaching while offering an explanation for the post-conciliar crisis, including this, the uncalled-for changes to the liturgy and religious life and you know, other facets of the Church. And according to Father Briscoe, uh, on the other hand, some in the, the uh, hermeneutic of rupture camp argue that the, um, the destabilization of the post-conciliar period has continued all the way up to our day. The reason is that the really real spirit of Vatican II was never properly adopted. Therefore, what the Church needs are even more radical changes, like you know, putting an end to clerical celibacy and, and you know, women in the priesthood and you know, even redefining human sexuality. See, and, and this apparently is the current conclusion of the synodal way in the, you know, of the Catholic leadership in places like Germany and Belgium. Also, Father Briscoe warns that uh, looking back at the council and everything that's happened since carries with it the danger of falling into the logical fallacy of post hoc ergo propter hoc. That is, after this, therefore, because of this. He says, to conclude that the way things are now in the church, for good or for ill, is because of Vatican II, is simply reductionist. After all, correlation does not prove causality, which is true. Although I would point out that literally every disastrous policy adopted since Vatican II has been undertaken precisely by appealing to the council, whether the council actually called for it or not. And there's the rub. Catholics of all kinds simply do not know what the Council actually taught. You know, obviously, it would be much easier to judge appeals to obey the spirit of the Council if more of us were familiar with the letter of the Council. You know, in the opinion of Father Briscoe, he says, I think one of the keys to focusing on our attempts to interpret the Council is to underscore that the Council was necessary. Now, one assumes this had to have been the opinion of Pope St. John XXIII, or he would not have called the Council in the first place. But remember that the reason that Pope John believed the Council was necessary was precisely so the deposit of faith would be guarded and explained more effectively. Now, whatever your opinion about the necessity of the Council, Father makes what I consider to be the salient point. He says, Every faithful Catholic interested in unpacking Vatican II should read the documents of the Council. And I agree, this has to be, this is, this is the only starting point for the Church to finally come to terms with Vatican II and everything that's happened since. Now, here's an interesting development. Uh, since the Middle Ages, every 25 years uh, since 1470, the Church has celebrated a holy year, sometimes called a jubilee year. And this is based on the Old Testament tradition of the semi-sesquitennial Jubilee year of rest and forgiveness. Semi-sesquitennial, that means every 75 years. Back in the Old Testament, everything after 75 years, everything would revert back. All the debts would be forgiven, etc., etc. Now, we never, the whole year doesn't go that far. But it's meant to be a time of pilgrimage and prayer and repentance and uh, for the spiritual and corporal works of mercy. Now, the last holy year was the Great Jubilee of 2000, and the next will be in 2025. 
And Pope Francis has chosen the theme for the upcoming Holy Year to be Pilgrims of Hope. And they have, they've got a logo and everything. You can see it on the Vatican website. Now, I bring this up because of what the Pope has called for by way of preparation for the upcoming Holy Year. Namely, focusing on the four constitutions issued by Vatican II for next year in 2023, followed by focusing on prayer in 2024. See, among the 16 documents of Vatican II, there were various decrees and declarations, and there were four constitutions. So, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Dei Verbum, the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation, Lumen Gentium, the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, and Gaudium et Spes, the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World. Now, I consider myself a a kind of pilgrim of hope, and a no-nonsense one at that. And I sincerely hope that Catholics around the world will take this seriously, that they will embrace this preparation by both reading and studying these documents. I think next year is going to be a great opportunity for Catholic commentators to discover and to compare what's really called for in those documents with what's actually happened in the Church, you know, uh, over the last six decades. And then in 2024, for all of us to take a year to prayerfully consider the way forward. And if that happens, I think it would be a good thing, although I wonder if the Pope will have cause to ponder the old saying, be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about, you know, what happens when people actually read the documents. See, I was a professional musician the first 10 years of my adult life, and when I converted to Catholicism, I was naturally conscripted into the music ministry at the parish. And uh, we built a new worship space, and and, uh, the new administration hired a full-time liturgist to tell us how to pray in our new church. And she herself was a trained musician and wanted the music ministers to be on the same page, you know, regarding what the church expected from us. And so she held a meeting to go over with us the post-conciliar instruction on church music called Musicum Sacrum, Instruction on Music in the Liturgy. It was promulgated in 1967. Now, what's interesting is that she had received her liturgist formation at, um, in a program sponsored by the Diocese of Los Angeles and held at a certain uh, Catholic university, which shall remain nameless, but its initials are LMU. And she provided us with an official copy of the instruction book, of the instruction, rather, in booklet form, because this is the days before the Internet. But when she led the class... She did not read herself from the booklet that she gave us, but rather she read excerpts of the document from the materials that came from her formation program. And what she didn't expect is that the official English translation of the document in the booklets was in many ways different from the translation that she'd been given by the diocese. So the situation was this. She herself had never actually read the whole document in question, but only excerpts from the document, and those excerpts in an unofficial translation accompanied by some rather biased commentary. Which is to say, she really didn't know the teaching of the document, but only what they wanted her to believe the document was teaching. And one of the first things I noticed is that the word renew figured prominently in the excerpts that she read to us. 
But in our translation, the word was more often rendered restore. And there's a significant difference. I mean, to restore means to return, to reinstate, to reestablish, etc. And while the word renew can mean to restore, it can also mean to renovate or reform or to start over. And which meaning do you suppose was preferred by the materials from the diocese? You know, I, at no point did we ever even go over the definition of what constitutes sacred music from that document, which gives pride of place to Gregorian chant, polyphony, and classical music played on organ or other instruments. Popular music is in the, the last and least place, but you would never have gotten that from the materials that, uh, that she presented to us. See, the point is there's a lot of misunderstanding and misrepresentation of Vatican II, and if we ever hope to achieve the purpose of the Council, which was to more effectively present the Gospel, then we need to, to study those documents and ask ourselves seriously, why is it that 60 years down the road, the meaning of the Council is still so hotly debated, and its purpose has not been achieved? And that's no nonsense. Back with more after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Years ago, I was at the library with some of my kids uh, looking at books, and I found a children's book on cowboys by a certain Stuart Ross. And as I leafed through the book, uh, I was pleasantly surprised to see a picture of Clayton Moore and Jay Silverheels as the Lone Ranger and Tonto. Uh, Happy until, uh, that is, I read the sidebar which said, The Lone Ranger was accompanied by an Indian, Tonto. The white hero and his loyal Native American servant was typical of the way Hollywood depicted Native Americans. It helped perpetuate the lie of white supremacy. Unquote. Hoy. Uh, now, <laughs> it's pretty easy to believe that uh, Mr. Ross has never actually seen an episode of The Lone Ranger, But it is a shame and a disgrace that any American child should be introduced to these noble characters of of Western fiction through the lens of such a malicious slander. Now, I understand that some folks today bristle at the term faithful Indian companion. Some people bristle at, you know, male pronouns. But the fact of the matter is that faithful, faithful Indian companion does not by any stretch of the imagination suggest that Tonto was the masked man's servant. On the contrary, the word companion means associate or partner, and above all, its first meaning is friend. Tonto, uh, in the series, he called the Lone Ranger Kimosabe, which according to Clayton Moore means faithful friend in the Pabotome Indian language. So the relationship between the Lone Ranger and Tonto was one of mutual respect. If you watch the show, and it's been in continuous reruns for 70 years, you'll discover that while other characters, you know, may speak in terms of your masked friend or your Indian friend, Tonto and the ranger always refer to each other simply as my friend without any qualification. They both share in in the chores around the camp as well as they do in the danger and the adventure. Tonto often asks, or I mean the Lone Ranger often asks Tonto's advice. What do you think we should do? And he takes it. You know, not to mention the fact that they often risk their lives for one another. 
which exemplifies the divine axiom, greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And they managed to accomplish all of this without any question of servitude or racism or you know, especially unwholesome sexual innuendo. And unlike many uh, Western sidekicks, Tonto was never played for comedy. In fact, he wasn't a sidekick at all, but portrayed as a true comrade in arms. And, you know, the fact that a cowboy and an Indian were partners sent a message of mutual respect and racial harmony that was, quite frankly, ahead of its time. Furthermore, I maintain that Tonto was a hero in his own right. And I exhibit A, uh, for example, in addition to being on, on radio and TV, Tonto appeared every month in the Lone Ranger comic books. But he also appeared in his own monthly comic book, which featured his solo adventures. Tonto was always portrayed as strong, smart, kind, uh, courageous, skilled, generous, noble, and incorruptible. He was everything a hero should be, and a fitting companion for the daring and resourceful masked rider of the plains. Now, why do I bring all of this up? Well, have you ever wondered why today's Hollywood can't make a successful Lone Ranger movie? I mean, the character is the epitome of the word iconic. The black mask, the white horse, the silver bullets, the hardy high silver, the, the fact that uh, uh, generations of people around the whole world can't hear the opening strains of the William Tell Overture without instantly conjuring up a picture of the Lone Ranger and Tonto. It's a slam dunk. It's, it's a marketing executive's dream. So why have three, no less than three, big-budget reboots from three major studios over the last 40 years all flopped. The Legend of the Lone Ranger from 1981, Paramount. Uh, Warner Brothers had a new TV version in I think, around 2003, I think, early 2000s. And then, of course, there's that, that deplorable Disney version from 2013 with Johnny Depp making uh, Tonto a Native American Jack Sparrow and Army Hammer playing the Lone Ranger as an incompetent buffoon. All of them tanked. And the reason why should be obvious is because today's Hollywood won't tell the real story of the Lone Ranger and Tono. Because the, the, the real story uh, is founded on the true friendship of two men. A true friendship which is about self-sacrifice and virtue. You know, think David and Jonathan in, in the Old Testament. And Satan hates that. And Satan owns Hollywood. You know, the first mark and the greatest evidence of genuine friendship is loyalty. The book of Proverbs 17, verse 17 says, A friend is always loyal, and a brother is born to help in time of need. See, unlike fair-weather friends that vanish at the first sign of trouble, true friendship means being available to help, especially in times of distress or personal struggle. You know, and, and then you think of that old song, What a Friend I Have in Jesus. In John 15, 15, Jesus tells the apostles, I shall no longer call you servants. I have called you friends. Because Jesus Christ is Lord and Master, he should call us servants. And instead he calls us friends. Because, you know, as he says, the, the Master doesn't reveal uh, the, the father of the family to, to the servants. This is, this is what he does with his friends. 
how comforting, how, how reassuring to be chosen to be the friends and the brothers of Christ. You know, because he is Lord and Master, we owe him our unqualified obedience. But most of all, Jesus asks us to obey him out of love, because we love him. Jesus commanded us to love one another as he loves us, and he loved us enough to give his life for us. Now, we don't have to die for someone or risk our lives for each other every week the way Tonto and the Lone Ranger did. But, but there are other ways to practice uh, sacrificial love with your friends. Listening, helping, encouraging one another. You know, you should be a kind and true friend. Um, and so should I, the way the Bible encourages us to be. And this is the real lesson of the relationship between the masked man and his faithful companion, Tonto. They were friends. And that's no nonsense. All right. Uh, last week, we, or I should say, I shared um, a number of what I called Keys to More Effective Prayer. And it was based on an article by a fellow named Rick Hamlin, who was the former, <laughs> sorry, rented lips, the former executive director of Guidepost Magazine. And uh, according to his article, How to Pray, 30 Ways to Move Forward in Faith. And we, we talked about a whole uh, number of things. Um, he had actually... Uh, created this list by journaling a different idea every day for a month. So there's 30 of these different ideas. And we got through about, I don't know how far, maybe two-thirds of them. But I wanted to pick up about things uh, that can help you with your prayer life. Um, and to begin with today, the, the one number one complaint you hear from people about um, prayer is how easily distracted they are. And Hamlin says that if you're distracted, you should notice the distractions. There's the, the key. Not just the noise outside your window, but, you know, all the stuff that's flying through your brain every minute. You know, it, it's common, and, and it's okay. You may notice, uh, he says, if you try and ignore the distraction, it just gets worse. Instead, he says, hear it or see it, notice it, acknowledge it, and then you can let it go or take it to prayer. I mentioned how I like to pray outdoors early in the morning. And I'll put on a little uh, soft music sort of in the background on my iPhone while I'm, while I'm praying in the office. But, you know, you can hear the birds, and I can hear the always the never-ending uh, sound of traffic from the uh, Orange Crush, from the, where all the highways come together. It's near my home. And, you know, you listen to the birds, and it's like, and if that starts to invade, I stop and listen. You know, say a prayer. Uh, thank God for creating the birds. Thanks, you know, God composed their song, so it's okay to listen to it in your prayer time. And then, having done that, you can, you know, go back to, uh, to your prayer. Or, you know, if, it, if it's the traffic noise, you can think that noise is being generated by real people and real automobiles, you know, and, and you can stop and say a prayer for them. Like I say, take that distraction, take it to prayer. Or if it's, you know, something that's happening in your own life or whatever the, the thought's going through your head. Take the time to notice it and, and then, you know, uh, give it to God or take it to prayer and hand it over to God. Because oftentimes distractions, if they're merely ignored, don't go away. 
But if they're acknowledged, if you acknowledge it, then you can do something about it. All right, another of his suggestions, which I think is a particularly good one, is turn to a psalm. Now, I've mentioned quite often that I uh, typically pray the um, shorter Christian prayer, which is the morning, evening, and night prayers from the Liturgy of the Hours. And the Liturgy of the Hours, of course, is, uh, revolves primarily around the Psalms. And they are a rich resource of inspired prayer. It's wonderful. I, it, the Psalms really cover kind of every sort of, every part of the human condition. And therefore, however you may be feeling at any given time, uh, something always stands out to you because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, all of those office, hours of the office include those readings from the Psalms. And, but I have to confess that sometimes I find myself just reading them rather than really praying them. And I think the lesson to be learned here is that the prayer time is an opportunity. I, I talked to a deacon that, you know, and that's part of there as a member of the ordained, it's uh, his obligation to pray the office every day. And he said, but you know, if you can't complete it, it's okay. Because this prayer time is an opportunity to be with God. And that's where the focus needs to be. And I'll I'll, uh, hold that thought and we'll return to that when we come back on the other side. You're listening to No Nonsense Catholic with Matthew Arnold. This is Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. We'll be right back after these messages. Thanks, and welcome back to No-Nonsense Catholic. We were talking about uh, different ways to uh, have a more effective prayer life uh, from an article by Rick Hamlin. And one of his recommendations was to turn to a psalm. And I mentioned that I pray the office, and of course there's, there's psalms and other readings and other prayers for every hour that you pray of, of the Liturgy of the Hours. But he says, um, you know, you can consider praying just one psalm or even take just one line of that psalm and meditate on it. Remember last week we talked about the anonymous medieval mystic who authored the book called The Cloud of Unknowing and how he recommended that you pray with simply just one word. And, uh, and, and Hamlin suggests you can do that too with a psalm. He says you can, if a, a certain verse strikes you, he says you can take that line and, and pray it over and over says, and as you do, you make it shorter each time. And he gave this example, be still and know that I am God. Right? And you pray that, and then you think, be still and know that I am. And then be still and know, until you finally just get to be with God. I would recommend another, if you're looking for a scriptural meditation that's daily, is the book of Proverbs. because, And you can start this any day, just uh, with the chapter that corresponds to that day's date, because the book of Proverbs has 31 chapters. So that's one for every day of the month. And you can read the, the chapter that corresponds to today's date, or you can just you know find one verse from that chapter, or even just one word, the way you would with the Psalms. We also talked last week about humility and humility in prayer. And Hamlin, that's one of his suggestions. Embrace your humility. 
Jesus tells the story of the Pharisee and the publican. I know how the proud Pharisee is all full of self-congratulatory prayers while the contrite publican stands afar off beating his breast and asking for God's mercy. And who does Jesus out? Who does Jesus single out? The one who keeps repeating, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Our Lord said that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility is a state in which you are already much blessed and it is a key to effective prayer. Next, he says, praise God. You know, this is, in the Catholic tradition, there are four great ends to prayer. Adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, and supplication. So prayers of of praise and worship, uh, prayers uh, of asking forgiveness of your sins, prayers of thanking God, and then then you make your supplications. Lord, help me with this or that. And praise, he says, is rich and fulfilling and good for the soul. And, of course, the Psalms are full of examples. Praising God is a chance to, well, injustice, to give credit where it's due. You know, the, the thing that we owe to God is worship and praise. And it's an opportunity to give thanks to God for all the good things that have come our way. Uh, Hamlet actually made the suggestion that you can make a short list three or five things that you're particularly thankful for, and, and write them down and hold these in your heart and, and use them when you praise God to have those be thinking about those things. Next up is give to others. And giving and praying are related in this sense. He says, let your meditation open you up to opportunities to give. So sometimes somebody will pop into your head or some concern for someone, or you think of a way to help, a phone call uh, that you could make or an email you could send. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, a, a big thing, an encouraging word that you can pass along, or maybe a check that you can write. You know, I sometimes think there's an overemphasis on the horizontal aspect of our religion, especially in worship, but the fact that, the fact is our faith is expressed vertically, right, to God, and horizontally to our neighbor. We talked about the greatest commandments in the first segment today. Looking to the heavens and giving to our neighbor are both forms of prayer. And Jesus said, whenever you did it to the, one of the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Uh, next up, well, this is a good one. Don't look at the clock. <laughs> now, when you're praying the Psalms, the good thing about that is I set the time aside and it's its own timer. Praying the rosary, the same thing. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You know when you're done. Uh, when a priest tells me to go in the pew after confession, say, just, just go into the church in front of the Blessed Sacrament and pray for five minutes. Oh, man. That five minutes, right? Uh, you know, you get clock bondage. You, you have to you're constantly on the phone. Has it been five minutes yet? Has it been five minutes yet? And that's obviously not what the priest had in mind, right? And you start worrying about how much time that your prayer is taking, and, and you yearn to look at that clock. Especially if you pray with your eyes closed, you're going to open one eye and, and check that clock. You know, but what if you have resolved to pray for five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever? Well, how do you keep track? There's a couple of options. Uh, one is to set a timer so that you don't have to keep track of the time. You know, uh, put your phone on do not disturb so that you're not going to be ir- interrupted by the text chimes or whatever. And because when you pray, 
you're encountering the eternal. You're really going into a place that's beyond space and time and your iPhone, okay, <laughs> of course. So, th- I mean, that, that's probably, if, if you have made that commitment, I'm going to pray a certain amount of minutes, then yeah, ha- have some external way to do it and not, you know, rely on checking the clock for yourself. All right. This is a good one. He says, pray through your anger. You know, if you resolve to pray every day, and you should, it's perfectly natural that there are going to be days when you've encountered, encountered something that makes you angry when it's time for you to pray. There's a lot going on in the world and in the church and in your life, you know, stuff that can, I'm sorry to say, make your blood boil. And so feelings of anger may come. Well, Hamlin says, don't run away from them. You know, it may be that you uh, might perceive some injustice or some perceived injustice from whether it was today or yesterday or a long time ago. And, and, you know, and it still infuriates you. And it comes up in your prayer time. He says, don't bury it. Acknowledge it. Express your anger, even if that anger is addressed to God. And trust me, God can take it. But once you've expressed that anger, then you can let it go. And having let it go, that's how you uh, experience the infinite love and forgiveness of God. Uh, Keep at it, right? Perseverance. He who perseveres unto the end will be saved. You know, we often speak of the practice of prayer. And practice is the operative word. And sometimes you're going to wonder if you're getting anywhere, if if you're growing at all. You know, the liturgy of the hours seems like such a blessing sometimes. I wonder, I mean, how could I get along without this? And at other times, it seems like drudgery. It's like, oh, okay, I got to open up the book and pray the office. It just seems like so much work. Why bother if my heart isn't in it? Well, what Hamlin says in his article is remind yourself that trying to do it is doing it. That in prayer, the trying is the doing. You know, that you can't fail so long as you keep at it. That's an old religious years and years ago told me, if you don't feel holy, act as if you were. (laughs) So, you know, and and as a musician for many years and a teacher of music and magic and, and, uh, and the faith for that matter, there's an old motto called practice makes perfect. I disagree. You know, on the contrary, what practice does is it makes permanent. So, and if you're not practicing correctly, you're going to be uh, making bad habits that are going to be difficult to break. You know, because practice makes permanent. But in prayer, I'm more inclined to agree with Mr. Hamlin that practice makes perfect because prayer is itself a perfect practice. There's no wrong way to call out to God. Uh, pray without ceasing. That's the, uh, the apostle's admonition. St. Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. And that can feel intimidating. You know, how do you do that? How, how do you pray in the middle of a busy day? Um, you know, the, uh, we already mentioned last week the Jesus prayer. And that's something that Orthodox Christians do. They say it all day, right? Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Just over and over all day long. And, and in an attempt to follow that admonition of St. Paul to pray always. Um, Getting into a habit is what gets you there. 
the Angelus is a prayer that you can say regularly, you know, three times a day. It was intended to be prayed at 6 and 12 and again at 6. The words you use, um, the, the powerful silence that you give yourself during the day, all of this can be called upon kind of in little bits and bursts throughout the day. Because we want to pray without ceasing because God's love is without ceasing. And that's also the power of those short little prayers that are called ejaculations. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, we love you, save souls. Jesus, live in our hearts forever. Um, O sacred heart of Jesus, make my heart like unto thine. And on and on and on. Even just the word Jesus or Mary. These are easy, simple prayers that you can pray throughout the day at any time of the day. And most especially in times of of temptation or difficulty or whatever. Uh, next up, let the, your light shine. He said, you, and he quotes Jesus, you are the light of the world, Jesus said, so let it shine. But he says, nobody, or no light shines unless it's plugged in, unless it's hooked up to the electricity. And he says, that's what you're doing in prayer. Every single day, you're plugging yourself into the source of, well, everything, truth and goodness and beauty and life itself, which is God. He is the source. And he says, you know, picture that. God's light is there. It's waiting to illuminate you as you linger in prayer. You know, and that's what prayer is, is taking the time to plug into that power source and charge up your batteries so that your light can shine before the world. And um, this one, I like, pray for others. My silver-haired old mother used to say, hold a good thought. And I, and I like that. I still, uh, you know, even years after my conversion, uh, that it comes quickly into my mind. Hold a good thought. Because prayer for others is about compassion. And your compassion for, you know, whatever uh, person you're praying for, whatever they might be going through, whether it's a surgery or, or marital troubles or family troubles or a financial loss, your compassion is a part of that prayer and your compassion will stay with you long after the prayer is over. And that's why, uh, like my mother said, hold a good thought. And um, these are just some of the many, many ways that uh, can help your prayer life be more effective. The most important thing is that you commit to praying every single day. Do not let a day go by without saying prayers. And of course, you know, having some kind of schedule, uh, morning, noon, and evening is, is the best way. And praying throughout the day. All right, um, that's our, our time. Thank you for being with us as usual. We'll do it all again next week. And until then, may God richly bless you and your family. <laughs>